Welcome to the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast, part of the constellation of podcasts powered by Christianity Today. Hey, Doug, good to see you. Good to see you too, JR. So one of the things that we have done in the past is we've done uh, a kind of a series of stuff in JR's office, but it's now time to turn the tables because you have some really cool things in your office as well. So we're going to talk about stuff in Doug's office. Yeah. And uh, there's one particular piece. I know that our listeners can't see what I see in terms of, uh, you know, the video that we, that you and I have, but right behind you over your right shoulder are a series of three pieces, uh, part of a, an art piece. Tell us about that because it's really fascinating. It's intriguing. And I think it has a lot to, to symbolically to speak to us here on the Monday Morning Pastor podcast. Yeah. So one of the things that our community has done, uh, our, our the Renew community, our church that JR and I attend, uh, has done in the past is we have a Good Friday art exhibit. And um, one of our, uh, one of my favorite worship leaders of all time, a guy by the name of John Hoover, um, he's not a professional worship leader. He's just a very gifted worship leader. He's a professional steel worker and just an incredibly creative guy. And so he did this piece behind me and it's, it's, it's really beautiful. It's, it's wood and steel. And the, uh, the three pieces, uh, you kind of see one with just a little bit of a tear in the middle. The second one has a little more of a tear and the third, you see this piece of metal split in half. And there's another piece of metal that wraps around and connects all three that says it is finished. And so it is one of my favorite pieces, number one, because of the person who made it, number two, because um, I have always struggled with feeling like I'm not good enough as a pastor. I've always struggled in that space of wondering, am I doing the right thing? Could I be doing more? And this is, this is behind me when I work down here in my basement office, reminding me that the pressure's off because Christ has finished his work and I get to partner mm. with him. So love And the ripping. Yeah. yeah. Tell us about the ripping. What is the ripping, uh, the tearing symbolizing? Yeah. The tearing is, is symbolizing the work of Christ on the cross, you know, as, as the temple ter- curtain is torn, uh, that, that the access of the Holy spirit is fully present in our, in our midst. So, yeah. Yeah. I really wish our listeners could, could see it, but yeah, this sort of progressive piece yes. from little tear, bigger tear, completely separated. We have access and uh, I think it was a few years ago that Sunday we talked about tetelestai, mm-hmm. that word that Jesus yells out, it is finished. Mm-hmm. And uh, that work is finished of, of being separated yep. that because, yeah, we're all, there's access. So Ooh, access. I love when you and I have this because I can look over your shoulder and, yeah. and see it. And uh, yeah, it is beautiful, made by a welder yeah. uh, in our church who serves as a, as a worship leader as well. And so, I think one yeah. of the things that I really appreciate about too is um, it's, it's an unfinished steel. So it started, it's starting to rust over a bit, which is uh, just like beautiful. The patina on the metal is awesome. and Yeah. So just super grateful for this stuff in my office. <laughs> yeah. What an image, what a challenge too, for us. Um, and, and I know many of our listeners, Doug, um, as, as great of pastors as they are, they're also people, which means that we struggle with insecurities and we struggle with, uh, you know, am I worth it? Especially in this season, as you and I have talked, there's not a single pastor that we've talked to when we say, how are you doing as a pastor? They're saying, I'm killing it, man. Like I'm nailing it. I'm thriving. Everything's amazing. Not a single one we've met. And so yeah. what a great reminder here on this Monday morning yeah. um, that it's finished. Yeah. <laughs> And I think it's so fitting for our episode today because we are going to be talking about the arts and just to have a really amazing conversation about worship and art and how these things really form us and shape us. And so 
what, you know, one last thing, sorry, just one more thing about this. What I love is it's just simple pieces. It's wood and metal. Um, things that most of the time are just sort of thrown away. In fact, some of the, I think the pieces that, that John used were leftovers from other projects that he was doing. And so I just appreciate the fact that God takes the leftovers of our life and makes them into beautiful things. Mm. So yeah, we really hope you enjoy this episode. Um, as we get to talk about how art uh, makes meaning for our communities and our churches and how we can enter into the beautiful presence of God in ways different than just singing. W. David O. Taylor is Associate Professor of Theology and Culture at Fuller Theological Seminary, as well as the Director of Brem, Texas, an initiative in worship, theology, and the arts. He teaches courses in systematic theology, art and faith, art and worship, art and theology, art and beauty, and theology and science fiction. He's the author of several books, including his most recent one, Open and Unafraid, The Psalms as a Guide to Life, which we're going to talk about with him on this interview. He's also written for magazines and newspapers such as the Washington Post, Religion News Service, Books and Culture, The Gospel Coalition, and Christianity Today, among others. For 12 years, he served as a pastor at Hope Chapel in Austin, Texas, and there he supervised an arts ministry and the adult education program, along with regular preaching. You may have seen his 2016 short film with U2's frontman Bono and pastor and author Eugene Peterson titled Bono and Eugene Peterson, The Psalms. He's an ordained priest in the Anglican Communion in North America, and he lives in Austin with his wife, Phaedra, and their two children. Enjoy this delightful conversation with David Taylor. Well, David, thanks so much for being on the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast with us today. Well, thanks for having me. It's it's like being on the Monday Morning Quarterback. <laughs> I mean, I know that's an obvious one, but I had to say it. Of course, of course, and that and Peter Peter does a great job with that for sure. So uh, you've you've been writing and teaching and leading the church and her leaders to think about the arts with a high priority, uh, even a higher priority than we've had in the past. I'd be curious, maybe you can help our listeners out. Just start by telling us what, where did that passion come from originally in you? Sure. Well, I was raised in Guatemala, Guatemala City, be exact, a missionary kid. And um, my father was a, a professor at a seminary, and my mother was a classical pianist. And, um, you know, we always had classical music, you know, playing in the home. Um, uh, I didn't have many sources of, of music to listen to myself, so I would often come home from school and lie down under the piano, and she would play. And, and my dad um, had an orchid farm that he tended. He had about 200 different orchids. Mm. And so I think there's just this sense in our home culture that the arts mattered in some sense, which within kind of my conservative evangelical like Dallas Theological Seminary culture that we grew up in, the arts really would have been secondary of importance or kind of more of a utilitarian value, kind of serving evangelism or, you know, uh, music worship. Um, so I'm very grateful, you know, for that. And then um, you know, high school, college, I always had an interest in the arts, but never thought it'd be a, a primary part of my life. It wasn't until seminary at Regent College that I had professors who cared deeply about the arts, and they were always integrating the arts into their theology lectures or biblical studies lectures, and that captured my imagination. 
And then um, four, four summers out of five years of seminary, I did an internship at a church in Austin that allowed me to explore the place of the arts. And then after seminary, I was a pastor for about 10 years. And one of my responsibilities was to oversee an arts ministry. And that's really where it, you know, clarified and concretized, uh, you know, my place, my role. But I, I never trained, you know, in the arts in any kind of formal way. Um, I've always loved them. Um, so it was more of an experience of discovery than, you know, prefab in advance. Uh, and now I get to teach it at Fuller Seminary. So I love I love that opportunity. Yeah, I think that's really beautiful. I love how you talk about the discovery aspect of it. You know, some people don't have that beautiful opportunity to discover this passion that comes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so what are some of the common misconceptions about the arts that you see within Christian context? Well, it's a long, long laundry list. <laughs> so I can itemize them for you if you wish. <laughs> Give you a receipt and invoice. Um, well, I mean, they, they, they go something like this. The arts are a luxury. Uh, they're an add-on. They're secondary. God's mission to the kingdom, to the church. Um, some have thought the arts are inherently dangerous. That's certainly what Plato thought a long time ago. And uh, many Christians ever since have agreed with him. Um, Christians have thought that some arts, art media are more important than others. Mm. Uh, so music is felt to be more important than, say, theater, dance, movies, um, to use a, a, a modern medium. Um, I think a lot of Christians have felt that for the arts to matter, they must have pragmatic, measurable outcomes mm. that have an explicit, quantifiable Christian dimension to it. Uh, in a way that that expectation is never placed on any other occupation or profession, right? But the arts are somehow <laughs> presumed to need this requirement. Uh, I think people struggle to see what the value of the imagination is or the emotions or the affections or our bodies, which are all central to the work of, of art making. Um, th I think those are the kinds of things. Um, it may, maybe like another sort of uh, pairing to what I just said is for the arts to matter, we must find some kind of explicit uh, prescriptive permission in scripture. If you can find it chapter and verse, then we can do it. And again, I, I guess I would say um, that's never asked of anybody who is establishing a monetary policy or an educational reform or business organizational models or farming methods or urban design. And none of those are asked to find a, a, a Bible verse. The arts are. So those, I think those are the kinds of you know, misconceptions. I have a tremendous amount of patience for them. I've been in, you know, in, this, in this work for long enough to know that People don't wake up and think to themselves, I want to be a really Philistine human being, <laughs> you know, backwards and stubborn and, you know, um, like I want to inherently find a reason to reject it. People come into these ideas because they've been bequeathed to them. We're part of traditions that tend to emphasize one thing or another, and the arts often get lost in the mix. And I do feel like my work, my primary calling, is to help provide clarity about these things. Mm -hmm. And I, I think a lot of my writing, if I may just say this, is, is less, um, I guess I would say, a lot of the books that I've written are less prescriptive. And then this, this is, these are all the things you should do. And more of a, um, 
kind of a, a, a cartographer work, like getting a sense of the landscape. Like, why do Lutherans or Baptists or Methodists or Episcopalians or Catholics or Orthodox, why do they think what they think? And why do they do what they do with the arts? Uh, why do free church or non-denom traditions find themselves, you know, drawn towards some and repelled by others? And I feel like my job is just to help my students, you know, in the context of the classroom or as a pastor, you know, folks in the congregation understand, you know, a little bit of church history, a little bit of theology, a little bit of biblical studies. So you kind of to see that big picture. And then you can find your place in that landscape and ask yourself, what does it mean for me to be faithful in, mm. in that mm. place? Mm. So let's talk a little bit further about some of those misconceptions, because I think some people, when it comes to misconceptions, at least most listeners to this podcast, they, they wouldn't say, oh, the arts are terrible, right. but it may not be as high of a priority as you sure. would advocate for. So yeah. what would you say to that pastor who would say, hey, look, David, I see the importance <laughs> of the arts, but right now there's just so many priorities. We're in a pandemic. There's so many racial issues, right. uh, social justice issues, so many economic issues. Um, why is this a priority now? Maybe it's even more so than the yeah. pandemic uh, than before the pandemic. How would you respond to somebody that says it's a priority? I'm not convinced it's as high of a priority as it needs sure. to be. I mean, honestly, what I would say is fair enough. Uh, mm. I, I get your point, and mm. for you and your you know context or the work that is near at hand, you need to give your energies to something else. That, that's mm. totally fine. Um, mm. I mean, if it's an absolute rejection, then, you know, we have a different kind of conversation. But I guess I'd first want to at least concede the point um, that at face value or looking at your immediate circumstances, the arts feel less pressing. Mm. Maybe what I would say next is um, it, that it might be helpful to re-see what it is that the arts are on about. Mm. I think if we get a different, fresh perspective, then we will see how they are part and parcel of the whole fabric of, of the good society, to use kind of that philosophical language, or <laughs> the kingdom of God, or the flourishing of the kingdom, the flourishing of, of the body of Christ. So I guess I would say the arts perform two fundamental um, functions in God's world and in human societies. And thus, I think the church and the kingdom have a very central role in this. One is that the arts provide like the aesthetic shape or fabric or contours or armature <laughs> of human life. I mean, mm. look around you and everything that you look at has been influenced by artists, your clothes, your glasses, uh, your, the art that's on your wall, the music that you listen to, which is no longer in CDs or tapes. <laughs> <laughs> it's not in your computers or wherever else, you know. Uh, your cars, your kitchens, everything in your refrigerator has been influenced by an artist saying, oh, this packaging should be red or blue or the font should be X or Y. Uh, you step outside your door. Uh, artists are involved in designing neighborhoods and public libraries and grocery stores and restaurants and cars. So the very fabric of our society has this aesthetic dimension to it. It has color and texture and sight and sound, all these things that you take all those away. And I'm afraid you're left with something that's called not human. Like there is no human society that does not have these. Now, how you arrange them differently, of course, is where culture comes into play. So on one hand, um, a life well lived, a good society, the flourishing of the kingdom 
have this positive um, role that artists can play. And I, I think it's what biblical scholars or theologians may call sort of the work of shalom, you know, mm-hmm. the, the God's, the God's good and pleasing and perfect will for, for creation and for what humans make of creation in terms of cultures and societies is that it would be marked by shalom. And one of the aspects of shalom is aesthetic joy mm. or aesthetic um, that everything kind of fits, has a place. So, um, for example, this is a silly example, but I make salsas a lot, uh, hot salsas. And I make them with jalapenos and serrano peppers and habanero peppers and ghost, ghost peppers. And I make all different kinds with different kinds of tomatoes and different kinds of peppers and onions, so on and so forth. And, and if you've ever gone to a grocery store in, in Texas, uh, particularly, you're going to have an entire um, bank of salsas. And I guess what I want to say is they all have a place in a grocery store. They all have a place in the kingdom. They all have a place, a different place to play, mm. a role to play in, in, in society. And they are also signs of an economy of abundance. And so artists have this role that they play in helping humans live a sort of a life of fullness, um, a life of, I guess I'm going to come back to this idea of God's economy of abundance over against an economy of scarcity. Mm-hmm. or sort of the lowest common denominator. Um, and if we're going to reduce human life to its mere biological necessities, I, I don't see uh, any resemblance to the life that God has established for us from the very beginning and that we see to the very end of Scripture. Okay, that's one. The second thing to say in short, the other thing artists do, and they have done in every society, is they are meaning-making machines. Mm. Uh, Artists are coming along uh, and alongside of the work of pastors and philosophers and educators and scientists and helping us make sense of what it means to be human. Now, artists are doing it in very specific ways. Um, So a politician and a philosopher and a poet could all get up on the steps of Capitol Hill yesterday, a a very insane day, (laughs) and all be able to say, hey, let me give uh, let, let me get a uh, take a crack at trying to make sense of what has just happened. And a politician will do what a politician does really well. A philosopher, let's just make them a philosopher historian, they put things into perspective. And a poet will, will give us figurative language that helps us figure out reality, which is how I explain it to my students. And so whether it's, you know, the music of Bach or BTS from Korea or Beethoven or Beyonce or Bob Dylan, to use all the Bs. That's good. <laughs> That's a really good alliteration. That is. Or Taylor Swift. Just after in there. Um, you know, or, or like the movies Soul that just came out, you know, with Disney mm-hmm. or Black Panther that are, are helping our, our entire African-American, you know, community make sense of their place in American history and American society in a very beautiful way, very powerful way with these stories. Um, you know, you name them. Artists are saying, hey, I think this is what it means to be human. Or they're coming along and they're naming realities that we find ourselves just sort of grasping at. And they give them names. Um, they help us imagine what we on ourself, by ourselves cannot imagine yet, right? Or they help us to name our feelings in ways that say, oh, that's exactly, that's precisely how I feel. And now I can be at home. You know, like I'm not going to be disoriented in myself or, or derailed because I really find myself thrown off by this pandemic or all the racial you know, unrest or whatever. All to say, 
artists are, are, uh, have a role to play. They're not more or less important, but they have a role to play in meeting making activities. Mm. Um, and they have in, in every human society. And they help us do something that is unique and I think irreplaceable. And I say that as somebody who has been a pastor and a preacher, and I love a well-crafted sermon. I love a sermon that leads the, to, to genuine transformation. But I know in the crafting of a piece of, say, homiletic rhetoric, rhetoric, you know, homily, sermon, like an arrangement of words, I can't do what an artist can do. And I want to partner with artists because I think they can, they can help us to see and to know things that, we, that I can't with my toolkit, you know, help people to know and to see. I, just to give you an example, and then I'm really going to end. I know I'm trying to be <laughs> economical here. When I was a, a pastor at a church in Austin, uh, and I've moved around the States quite a bit, and I'm back and forth to Austin, but I, I was a pastor in Austin. I commissioned a work by an artist in, 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 in town to create this massive 20 foot um, wide by nine foot tall banner um, that would hang at the very back of the sanctuary. And it would hang during the season of Easter and, and only during that season. And we talked about it in long story short, he created this image, this massive, beautiful image of this resurrected Christ. And all of creation in this image is swirling around him, um, you know, trees and, and, and bodies of water and, 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 playgrounds and guitars and and bread and wine and, and like uh, all these sort of representative and symbolic elements of creation are swirling around the resurrected Christ and you see the new Jerusalem above him descending down and you see the harrowing of hell under his feet so it's sort of this microcosm of what the resurrection means and I wanted it on the back wall because at the end of our worship service I wanted everyone to leave and have that image be the last thing that that imprints itself on their imagination or on their minds. So when they go out into their, their lives, into the complicated, um, difficult, um, discouraging, um, busy, demanding lives, they would have the sense that the resurrected Christ is with them in every aspect of their lives. I wanted that to be part of the imaginative furniture, you know, of their own interior lives. And that would be the most powerful image that would capture their heart's affections. So when they're tempted to believe that the, you know, the kingdom of death has its last word or the kingdom of Satan, you know, would sort of overcome the gates of, of heaven, <laughs> um, that they would have this sense that inside of their imagination, they would see that Jesus himself is making all things new. Mm. I can't do that in a sermon. I can talk about it, but I can't do what all those bits and pieces of an image do together. Mm. That's what I think artists can do. Yeah, and and that's an 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 incredibly inspiring rationale as to why this is important. And, and let's say people are caught up in that. Pastors say, "Okay, David, I get it." And let's say they respond with this, "Okay, you you convinced me. I see yeah. the role of right. the arts in worship." Right. And maybe you gave an example already of partnering to say, "How do we partner right. with artists?" But if people say, "I'm not creative, I'm not artistic, but sure. I want to raise the temperature and I want to sure. raise the value and priority within a yeah. church." How would I cultivate that in my own church context? Let's see if we can get ridiculously practical. I'm not trying to give set, you know, a listicle of seven easy things, but 
But what would what comes to mind when it comes to practical ways that quote I know we're all artistic, but right, pastor right. could say I'm not creative, yeah. at least in the aesthetic sense. What can I do to cultivate that? How would you answer that, Pastor? And and hold on, if I could add, if you could work in Bob Dylan, Beyonce, and Taylor Swift, I would highly appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> Let me pray about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I would say, uh, if an artist said that to me, I would say, uh, thank you, and God bless you, and uh, and I'm with you. Uh, and if you feel overwhelmed or intimidated, you're not alone. Mm. Um, I would say it's it's perfectly fine to start small and to start simple. Like there there are no you know awards given out for being massive and impressive and stellar and whatever you know just start simple. Um, also start with what you have. Mm. Um, sometimes we're tempted to you know get into the import export business. We're always like, oh well, that church does this and that those people do that and that pastor is amazing. So just keep exporting all these things. But I guess I would encourage a pastor to start with what you have, which presumes that you know what you have. And, and you may just need to find out, well, who's in your community? You may have a congregation of 50 people in a small rural town in Nebraska, or you may have a large congregation in a large you know, metropolitan area, area. So just ask yourself what you have. I think like in terms of artistic or creative uh, people, also ask yourself, where might it be most useful or needful? Um, and it may or may not be within your corporate worship time. It could be in some other, you know, non-Sunday morning-ish kind of time. And then ask yourself, well, what would you get excited about? Like, you know, would you want something during your sermon to help your sermon better? Do you want it during your singing time, during the prayer time, during the Lord's Supper time? Like, can you imagine a part of the service you know, your worship time together where you would get excited about an artistic thing coming into play and then sit down with the people that you have and you say, Hey, here's some ideas and hopes I have, but what do you guys think? And, and what would you love to see? And maybe there's a collaborative sort of work together. Um, and if you only have musicians or you only have poets or you only have visual artists, well, then work with what you have and trust that that's God's provision of grace for you. Like our congregation is maybe 150 people, 175, I guess. I'm not the pastor of it. You know, I'm, I'm, I mean, I am an ordained pastor, a priest, but I'm not on staff. Um, but our, our, our senior pastor uh, loves the arts uh, and he wants to do things with the arts, but we only have three or four visual artists. And that's mostly it. You know, maybe a few musicians that help us with, you know, the worship. But he began with them and he blessed them. He said, what could we do together? And one of them said, I'd love to do um, these Advent windows. Um, so this past Advent, he said, well, what, what do you mean? She said, well, invite, you know, families in the congregations to work, whether you have kids or not, you know, to create some kind of representation of, of the Christmas story on one of the windows in your home. And here are the videos that you can learn. Here's a handout, some resources. And then when you're done, take a picture and we'll put it on our Instagram feed. It's very simple. Like it wasn't fancy or complicated and it's not going to win any awards in any kind of gallery, but it was really wonderful to, to honor and bless the, the, the artist, you know, that said, Hey, I'd love to volunteer. What do you think? And our pastor said, that's great. You know, do you need some funds to make it happen or not? You know? Um, and I, I would say, you know, those are the things you can do um, sort of like, practically speaking, or, you know, as a process to get to the place of, you know, 
doing something. You may also think to yourself, um, I'm going to do some short and long term. Like I'd love to do something more complex or more robust or more exciting, but I need a year to no problem. Just give yourself a year and kind of, you know, make a plan of action because life is full and your schedule is full. So, you know, don't stress yourself out un, un, unneedfully. David, I, that, that's so helpful. I want to kind of flip the question a bit, though. What does it feel like for an artist who's sitting in a community right now who has not been blessed and encouraged in utilizing that gift for the kingdom? Well, I, I mean, I think an artist like that will feel what any of us feel when we feel invisible, right? When we feel unknown, unloved, unseen, unvalued. I mean, I don't know if everybody has felt that. I mean, I think I'd like to think all of us at some point in our life have felt like what we did didn't really matter to somebody. Uh, And I think if you're honest or vulnerable enough with yourself, you'll admit that that hurts. you know, it can make you deeply sad. Um, it can make you feel like you'll never amount to anything, um, that you'll always be on the sidelines, um, that the real exciting things that God cares about are not things that you get to be a part of. Um, so, so I guess I would say our artists feel these things, but they're not the only ones to feel these. I mean, they feel them in very specific ways as artists. But I mean, I know a lot of moms, you know, who feel unseen, unvalued. Um, I think pastors, when they start comparing themselves to other pastors whom they perceive as successful on certain terms, may struggle with those kinds of things. So, you know, I, I edited a book, I have it with me right now, called For the Beauty of the Church. And different people contributed, like Eugene Peterson and Andy Crouch and Jamie Begbie and Lauren Winter. But I, I asked a pastor who was a pastor to artist to write a chapter. And it's very beautiful, um, beautifully written. It's one of my favorite things, you know, that I've read on the topic. And, and one of the things that he encourages us as pastors to do is, is just to let the artists in your community know that, know that they're seen. You don't have to understand. You don't have to like what they make. Um, but just simply like if you have the time and maybe you're part of a long, large congregation, you simply don't have the bandwidth to meet with everybody. And maybe there's another way you can do that. Um, but to have coffee with them alone or, or with all the artists say, Hey, look, I'd like to invite you for lunch, you know, um, my office or wherever it is, you know, tell me your story. Um, tell me what you love. Tell me what gets you excited. Tell me what's hard. And that's it. I mean, and I know I'm not saying anything new here. I just think that's what Jesus did with everybody. You know, he sees people. You know, I saw you under the fig tree. Um, and I think artists hunger for that like any one of us does. Well, David, and you mentioned the book that you edited, but you've also written several books. And uh, one of the things that I've appreciated from you from afar is uh, the way in which you use various media mm. uh we don't often think of Twitter as an aesthetic or as an expression, but I have so appreciated the way you have been artistic, even through the means oh, of Twitter well, thank you. and thank the you. written word, but in more, uh, more thoughtful or thought out ways, I guess most of us would say in terms of book writing and book editing yeah. and rewriting and things like that, you've written a book recently that I think is really important for our time, especially with all the turbulence that's been going yeah. on around the world and using the Psalms 
And so I, I want I would love for our listeners uh, to hear you articulate a little bit a little bit more about your new book, Open and Afraid: The Psalms as a Guide to Life. Uh, this ironically came out uh, here in Philadelphia like two days before all the stuff. There's got to be a unique time in the midst of a book launch that came out like oh the week God. that everything shut down. But with that being yeah. said, tell us about Open and Afraid and how the Psalms can actually help us, especially in these times. Can I just say, like, my book released March 10th and everything shut down like on March 13th. <laughs> and it was just, it was such a deflating moment. Um, because I thought to myself, I was just so ready to do the big promotion. I yeah. thought, and you hey. went to the imprecatory psalms, right? You went to the psalms <laughs> I did, I right did. out of the gate. <laughs> I did curses, but it's fine. I mean, it's fine in God's economy. There's there's more than an abundance of time. So I wrote open and unafraid uh, for several reasons. One, part of me wondered if, if a Christian could only take the Psalter to the proverbial lonely island, the island that they lived by themselves for years and years, and they only had the book of Psalms, what kind of ideas about God would they develop? What kind of sense of what it meant to be human would they acquire? <clears throat> How would their prayer life change? And so I wrote that book, you know, um, to give us kind of a vision for a faithful life if you only looked to what Martin Luther called the little Bible. I also wrote it because I felt like the Psalms were this extraordinary gift that God has given us as a kind of what I call a devotional antidote, a devotional liturgical antidote to our primordial sin. And, and how I explain it in the book is the effect of, you know, Adam and Eve sin and how we live it out in our own lives is to hide and to run away from God to hide and to run away from others, and to hide and to run away from our own selves. And the Psalms are a gift to help us and provide practical helps to, to unhide, to, to not hide, to not run away, to choose to be naked and vulnerable and porous and unafraid before God, before one another, and before even ourselves. And the Psalms do this in a whole host of ways. And, uh, you know, that's why John Calvin called it the anatomy of the soul, because everything you've ever felt or thought, I mean, these poems were written 3000 years ago. That's, that's a boatload of years. You know, that's, that's a, that's a big cultural and historical gulf standing between us. And yet it feels as fresh as anything. And of course, that's, I think the genius of the Psalms. So I, I, I write, I write the book, um, to, in the hopes that I'm bringing sort of the, the best gifts of sort of the scholarly work on the Psalms, but also kind of a pastoral instinct that, you know, would, would want to write in such a way that, that anybody, you know, anybody can pick up the Psalter, anybody could pick up my book. Um, and I have these three chapters at the beginning, just kind of a toolkit. In what sense are the uh, Psalms prayers? Uh, what do we do with the poetry? How have they you know, serve the church throughout history. And then I kind of do an emotion, uh, three chapters on emotional intelligence <laughs> or emotional health, sadness, anger, joy, and then a whole sequence of pairs, um, life and death, justice, enemies, nations, creation, so on. Um, and then because I am a pastor and I, I want people to have as much help as possible getting into the Psalms, I have, you know, these questions and exercises at the end. That's a book. In short. And I, I 
realized I misspoke. It is not open and afraid. That's the exact, the opposite of what we're trying to do. We're not closed and afraid. We're open and unafraid. You're not the first person to say that, though. <laughs> it is clearly not open and afraid. That's, that's, that's what we love about the Psalms, right? They teach us how to be open yes. and unafraid. So, that's right. That's uh, right. Really, yeah. So forgive me for on that beginning part. No, no, it's fine. So as you're, as you're thinking about this, obviously, you know, we're joking about how this came out the week of the pandemic, sure. but what do you know now that you wish you knew in the writing? Maybe it's nothing. Maybe you would write it exactly the way you wrote it, but does it change at all your message? Does it make it more important, less important, more relevant, less relevant because of what the world has gone through the last year or so? You know, I, I don't know if I would write it differently. You know, when you sit on something for years and years, you know, the spaghetti sauce has a chance to simmer and get just right. It doesn't mean that you would not revise. Of course I would. Um, but I, I do feel like it. no one wishes the pandemic on us, on this planet. No one wishes this, the you know, social and racial unrest and all the violence and all the loss and all the death. No one, right? But maybe it it gives us fresh eyes to see the relevance of, of the entire, you know, book of Psalms and not just bits and pieces. Mm. And, you know, one of the things I, I say in the book is all of us personally and all of us as a church culture tend to have a canon within a canon, a, a Psalter within a Psalter, kind of a piecemeal, you know, Benjamin Franklin cutting and pasting Psalter and mini Psalter. And there's a reason why Psalm 139 has like a curse and precatory element at the very end. After all this glorious, you know, you've searched me and you know me and wonderfully made. We love these verses, but it has that stuff at, at the end to remind us what really is in the human heart, not just this marvelous sense that we are made in the image of, you know, our maker, but search me and see if there's any wicked way in me. Right. And so we pray these prayers of self-examination and, and self-relinquishment. That is, we relinquish uh, all the contents of our hearts to God in prayer and with others. And so even I think with kids, like a friend of mine who's a musician, very talented musician, we co-wrote actually two songs, one drawing from Psalm 23 and one that I, I saw my own two children struggling with anxiety in a way that they never have you know, during this pandemic. And so I, I ended up writing what I called a, a bedtime song for anxious children, drawing from the language of the Psalms. And I saw how, you know, my eldest, um, for the first time in her life, really understood, she's nine, like the Psalms are like her heart's language. Um, and it was giving her words and, and sounds, in this case, with a song to say to God how she was really feeling. And I guess that's what I hope, you know, that any reader of my book, that they would then go read the Psalms themselves and find it uh, helping them bring their whole, whole life, their whole humanity before God, but not alone, you know, um, with others who can bear all of these things with them. I think that would be my hope. David, I just appreciate so much about your posture towards the arts and especially in your writing and your posture towards have, having people develop the emotional language and mm -hmm. have these beautiful prayers 
that are not that are our prayers, but that have been prayed for thousands of years that yeah. invite yeah. us into this uh, great cloud of witnesses who experience mm-hmm. the same stuff. So I want to ask you a question. Yeah. It might be throwing you on the spot, but could you <laughs> sing or speak the lyrics of the anxious of the prayer of the song that you wrote? Um, and and my, and I'm asking this because my, my sense is, as Jr. and I have talked to pastors and leaders, it, it is the anxiety that we continue to hear is so high. So would yeah. would you be willing to bless us with that? Yeah, absolutely. My wife and I created this series of prayer cards, the Psalms prayer cards that illustrated. So we took the chapters of my book and then she illustrated it. And then on the backside, I have sort of questions, two questions and an excerpt from the Psalm and a prayer because we wanted to provide helps for families, especially for children in particular who are struggling. We felt like images would help them, but adults, you know, as well. Um, but you know, um, okay, let me, um, let me read this. Okay. Uh, bedtime song for anxious children. Um, my good shepherd shepherd me hear my prayer and my plea. May I sleep in peace tonight in your warm and shielding light. Help me not to feel alone. Be my refuge and my home. Please protect my heart from fear and to trust that you are near. Guard me from all things that harm and enfold me in your arms. Thank you, Lord, for your sweet care and for hearing this my prayer. David, thank you so much for sharing that with us. Thank you. Yeah, uh, thank you. Guys. Thank you so much for this time that we've had together. Just oh, what a blessing you. it's been, and thank you for leaving that word and mm. for our pastors to oh, to walk away with today. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Amen. I, I mean, I just have so much compassion for artists these days. Mm. There's just always somebody who's mad at you, <laughs> and even more so this past year. I just want to say my prayers are with you. <laughs> mm-hmm. mm. Yeah. Oh, don't give yeah. up. Yeah. Well, thanks again. Yeah. Bless you guys. You too. Doug, I know we've had some other artists and theologians on, and it was so great to hear from David's perspective. I'm so grateful for the work that he's done and the chance we had a chance to uh, to connect with him here. Yeah, me too. I, I First of all, his beard was beautiful. I mean, we, <laughs> I wish our listeners could have seen that. Uh, yeah, me too. Um, and I, I just really appreciated uh, just his posture towards, uh, he just feel, he, it felt very gentle towards, hey, some of you get it and you you're doing it and some of you that don't here are just some really easy practical ways to begin the conversation um but for me i man i i was really i really appreciated the way that he talked about um just the misconceptions uh and i know a lot of us know some of those misconceptions but i felt like he was really able to articulate them very well and uh it yeah it it's it's just making me think about what misconceptions may still stand within, you know, within our community that, that we may need to see to, we may need to continue to press against in the season to come. Yeah. I know there are misconceptions. I'm so grateful he listed those, Mm -hmm. you know, that it's a luxury, that it's an add on, that it's secondary, that it's dangerous, that there's a hierarchy of some expressions over the others. Like, I guess each one that you mentioned, I was like, yeah, oh yeah, I've seen that pop up. Oh yeah. That when I grew up, that was, you know, so I'm really, I'm really grateful. Uh, for that. 
Doug, take a moment and tell everybody about um, our church and some small ways we've done that with like with um, Advent art. Yeah. So one of the things that I've really appreciated is uh, Michael and Lindsay Smith are two two just amazing people um, in our community, but they've really helped us think through the arts over the years. And one of the things that we've been able to to really I, I would say I'm very proud of, and also uh, Ben Pitson, the other pastor in our church, has really just done a good job of saying how do we how do we see our artists come alive and and um, so during Advent we we've had we had an Advent art show this year uh, at the place at the office where Jr. and I both work, uh, me with Renew, Jr. With, with Kairos, and it was just beautiful. We had small children and older adults and everyone in between doing very unique pieces, some very experiential pieces. We had poetry. Uh, we had some beautiful kids drawings of the Christmas scene. Um, but it was just amazing to see the different ways that our community was able to come together and create some meaning out of this, this, you know, this, this, this particular thing like Advent we do every single year. Um, so I've been really grateful for that. And even just the fact that like one of the things we've, we've been working towards is just having these opportunities where we invite artists together to say, how do we, how do we, how do we observe Advent? How do we observe Lent? What does it look like to celebrate Easter or to celebrate Pentecost in a way that is not just from the preaching of the word and from the worship through song, but how do we have a bigger picture? Um, and I've just been so grateful to be part of a community that, I mean, I remember one of the first conversations I had with UJR year one of being an apprentice at Renew that you were just talking about, man, how, how do we see more arts come alive in our community? And it's just so neat to, to know that those things don't pop up on their own, but as leaders, we have to be intentional about calling that out and inviting others in and realizing you don't have to be the expert. Uh, you don't have to be the artist, but you just have to be the, the, the head permission giver to in, in yeah. encourage people to, right. to jump in. That's a good word. A lead permission, head permission giver. Yeah. I struggled with that for years in terms of the pressure of going, I'm not artistic. You know, I don't play an instrument. I don't do poetry. I don't, I don't paint, you know, all the things about, I'm not in drama dance. And, and I say, I, I know I'm creative. I mean, I'm made in the image of God, but like, I just put pressure on myself. I have to be more creative and use the visual arts more in a sermon. And 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 then I began to go. Wait a second. How about I just use the people that are already here that love to do this and are just waiting to be asked and invited in? And I just love that. That's something that you and Ben have continued to cultivate. I love the advice that he gave. And and that question that I asked of, what do you do if you build if you if you you're already bought in as I am, yeah. but you're not artistic? Yeah. And I just love the four things that he said. He said, start small, start, start small. simple, start with what you have, and start with maybe not a Sunday morning space. Maybe there's some other spaces within your church that you can do that. And I, I just hope that pastors listening uh, to, to this would really take that to heart. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I just love the fact that at, at Renew, we, we've done that. With the seminary courses that I teach, and it's been on you know Zoom the last uh, two semesters for me, but I'm not, I'm not artistic, and, but I know that my students, many of them are. And so one of the things that I've done is try to reach back into this great tradition we have uh, and this great medium through Google to be able to to type in, you know, Christian art through the ages and to see this beautiful art. And I've collected it over the years in a file I'm on Dropbox. And then I just start each class for, for 10 minutes devotionally by putting a piece up, explaining it, talking about it, and then inviting them prayerfully to look at it for two minutes. And then just saying, 
what do you all think? How is this resonating with you? How is the Lord meeting? What do you, what do you see in this? How might this impact how we think about this passage? Or I'm going to read this passage, but I don't want you to read your Bibles. I want you to look at the screen at the painting that's about this passage. So yeah, I'm, I'm not artistic, but I'm just slowly, uh, I'm not even artistic with ideas of how to be artistic. Um, <laughs> and so I really appreciate, you can steal some of these ideas. And I think I heard that from somebody else and stole it from them too, which, which I think is great. But he also talked about salsa. I don't think we talk about the arts with food as much as no, we should, but we man, taste and see that the Lord is good, the Psalms say, right? And so taste and see salsa. I'll, I'll take some salsa. Maybe not as hot as he makes it, but <laughs> nonetheless, uh, those, those Texans, especially in Austin, they take their salsa seriously. But, um, but I love the fact that he said, everything that you look at is influenced by art, that there's an aesthetic dimension and that artists are meaning-making machines. I guess fascinating to me. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I'm so glad we had David on. I've, I've respected him from afar and uh, so grateful to spend some time with him uh, up close on this. Yeah, so let, let us give you some resources and even just some questions. And so just a couple of resources. His book, Open and Unafraid, uh, we'll have the link to- uh, uh, It's not open jo- and afraid, by the way. So <laughs> unafraid. <laughs> Let me make that yeah. another note one yeah. more time. How I mispronounced. That's uh, a book that J- <laughs> That's a book that Jr. and I are working on. Uh, yeah, in- it's a horror thrill, <laughs> thriller. You'll love it. You'll love it. Um, but open and unafraid. Uh, just a fantastic book. And again, these will be the, the there will be links in the show notes. And then uh, the prayer cards for anxious children. Uh, the link will be in the show notes too. But just some two two really great resources for you all. Yeah. And Doug, by the way, I'm so glad that you invited him to share one of those prayers at the end. You called an audible at the line of scrimmage, and I think that play worked. And uh, I'm so glad he was able to share that. So yeah, as Doug said, those will be in the show notes. Two questions for for our listeners here as we end, as we're rounding third and heading for home. Uh, the first one is, what misconceptions do you think are most prevalent today in our culture? The ones that David mentioned, or what's most? what are the misconceptions that are most prevalent in your church context? Which is the one that maybe you need to work through as the pastor in order to become, as Doug said, the, the head permission giver in your context? Number two, if you took just one small step toward cultivating the arts or raising the priority of the arts in your community, what would that be? Not some huge step, just 5%, just one little step forward in the next month. What could you do? And so brothers and sisters, I just want to leave you with a, with a final word or a benediction, a good, a good word for y'all. And so brothers and sisters, as you go into this week, may you be reminded that the God who created the universe has put that same creative drive in you, that you don't have to be the head creator, but you are called to be the head permission giver. May you begin to see the arts unfold and may that drive you to your knees in wonder and astonishment as you think about how big and good our God is. And as you go, may you be reminded that there are artists all around you that need to be seen, that need to be understood. And so may you have the courage and the boldness and the understanding to see, to hear, and to call out the arts within your community. Amen. Amen.